Welcome to the Amazing App Show from Microsoft business applications makers who want to build amazing applications that everyone will love. Hi there, I'm your host, Neil Benson. My goal on this show is to help you slash your project budgets, reduce your delivery timelines, mitigate technical risks, and create amazing, agile Microsoft Dynamics 365 and Power Platform applications. You probably can't see it on this podcast episode, even if you squint at the episode artwork, but I'm wearing an Amazing Apps t-shirt. I'll be making them available through a swag store soon if you'd like to support the show. In fact, I'll tell you what, let's give away a t-shirt. If you'd like a free Amazing Applications t-shirt, post the podcast cover art on your LinkedIn feed and tag the two people represented in the artwork. Here's a clue. I'm the one wearing the hard hat and the other one is the original co-host back when we started in 2018 working at KPMG together. I don't have a t-shirt shotgun, but I'll get in touch with the first person to post the cover art and tag the original co-hosts. I'll find out your color and size and get it shipped out to you. Right, let's get into it. This is another interview episode packed with insights on how to build amazing applications as an ISV, as an independent software vendor. In the last episode, we heard from Bert Vines at Power Accelerate, and I hope you subscribed to the show and listened to the extended bonus episode with Bert, because we've got another bonus extended episode for this episode's guest as well. He's CJ Brooks. He's the fundraising and engagement architect at Mission CRM. And as you'll find out in this episode, he likes to pretend he's from Canada just as much as I like to pretend that I'm from Australia. CJ reveals how Mission CRM closed the doors in their consulting practice to focus on building the Mission CRM fundraising and engagement application for non-profit organizations. I picture the gates to their office locked like the gates to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. No one has come in or out for years, but you can smell the wonderful aroma of chocolate being made inside. I hope you enjoy it. You'll find show notes for this episode at customary.com slash 027. That's the word customer with a Y on the end, dot com slash 027. Remember to subscribe to the Amazing Applications podcast on your favorite podcast player so that you get access to the special extended interview episode In that one, CJ and I try to solve the Elon Musk problem in Dataverse. We discuss the art of simplicity in application design, how Mission CRM chose its licensing model, and how they imagine their roadmap for future investments. CJ Brooks, welcome to the Amazing Applications Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me there, Neil. It's something I've been looking forward to for quite some time. What we'd love to do to get to know you a little bit better, I normally start with three kind of easy questions, just so we can understand your background and what you're up to. So can you tell us, first of all, what you had for breakfast this morning? Well, for for breakfast I had this morning, very exciting. I had uh, yesterday's burger, which went uneaten last night, actually. So uh, yeah, a a very healthy breakfast indeed. (laughs) <laughs> it sounds like a type of thing I would eat when I was a, a single young man living in a in a dorm room somewhere. 
There's nothing better than leftover pizza, last night's curry, or sometimes a burger for breakfast. I really don't know why. If it's so great for dinner, why would it not be great for breakfast as well, right? So I've started, whenever I make pizzas for the family, the last pizza to come out of the oven, I made eight pizzas on um, Saturday night. The last pizza, I slightly undercooked it in the pizza oven because I knew that nobody could finish it and we'd have to reheat it the next day. And it cooks a little bit more on, on, on Sunday, so on uh, Monday. So yeah. <laughs> I strategically cook leftovers. <laughs> there you go. The next day. Yeah. <laughs> like a baker's dozen, right? So, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, what was your What was your first job, uh, either coming out of school or university? Love to find out how you got started. Yeah, so m- my first job actually for full time employment was um, a network engineer. I was uh, traveling around the UK at the time, uh, implementing on behalf of uh, Genesis, which is uh, like a New Zealand voice over IP company. Yeah. Literally plugging servers in, plugging cabling, doing the Cat5 joining and all those things and stuff. So my, my actual background is like electrical engineer. So, Oh, cool. Good stuff. And what's your role today? Uh, today, I am product manager at Mission CRM, and I am in charge of creating our application, the Mission CRM application, on top of fundraising engagement, and also one of the co-creators of fundraising engagement along with Mission CRM, with uh, Microsoft as well. Good stuff. I'd love to get into that story a little bit more and how you built the application. But tell me, you're based in Canada. Your accent sounds as much Canadian as my accent sounds Australian. What's going on there? Yeah, so uh, originally from the UK, I moved to Canada about 10 years ago at this point in time. And and my actual background was born and raised around in the uh, the Northwest, but re-traveled quite a bit as well. So Lived in London. I lived in Switzerland and Zurich for a bit. I actually went to school there for some time. And then uh, back to London again and then ended up in, in Canada. And Canada's treated me phenomenally well. So uh, I'm happy to find a home here. Yeah, good stuff. I say the same thing about Australia. I'm really lucky to be here too. Um, whenever I think about the cold weather and the warm beer back in the UK. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> we, we have flip-flopping of weather. Ours is, uh, I always tell my friends back in the, uh, in the UK, you know, I, I can't tell you what it feels like to live in a country where it's plus 40 in the summer and minus 40 Celsius in the winter. Like that range is, is mind boggling, you, you know, but it, it's something that we see like every single time here. So the, the weather here in Queensland varies from about 30 degrees in the winter to about 34 degrees in the summer. <laughs> so it's okay. Pretty, yeah. pretty consistent. <laughs> pretty consistent. Yeah, I'd say yeah. so. <laughs> Mission CRM. Tell me a little bit about the, the company and what it does. What we'd love to find out is about the application you built as well. But tell us a little bit about Mission CRM to begin with. Yeah, well, Mission CRM's uh, genesis, I, I guess, really was around our background of implementing custom solutions over and over again, you know, for various different clients, all in Dynamics, all in a background of Dynamics, to the point where we actually started to do some implementations uh, for some nonprofits. And, you know, at, at the time, this is like, you know, five years ago, you know, we were saying to ourselves, like, why isn't there like a turnkey application that uses this phenomenal platform dynamics, but really tailors it for nonprofits' needs for fundraising? You know, there's a huge market out there um, occupied really successfully by a lot of other vendors. And, and it just seemed like there was a bit of a loss opportunity. So we set out uh, to do an incredible amount of investigation as to what really was going on in the, in the place. And, and there are absolutely people in dynamics that do this. We really saw a gap in like that plug and play app store enabled application. So that led us on the journey to create the Mission CRM system as we see it today. 
And it also allowed us to partner with Microsoft and building fundraising and engagement, which is a which is a fundraising based solution built specifically for Dynamics as an application that turns Dynamics into a fundraising solution. And you know, on the back of that, we've also extended that application to add additional features as well. And and this really all came about from you know um, many vendors like uh, Salesforce in their application world. We're having an incredible amount of success in their .org solutions as well. And we also saw that you know, other organizations like Blackboard were having tremendous success with their fundraising solutions. But there was no real consistent like mass market dynamics approach, where it was a cloud-first approach, where we could kind of leverage everything that was happening in dynamics as it was occurring. And of course, give what are very, very different needs to the nonprofit. One of the interesting things about nonprofits is they have the least amount of operational money to spend, but they have some of the most stringent compliance rules in the world. So all these things that, that are so fitting for technology and automation and workflow processing, it just seemed like such a, a great fit to have that powerful Dynamics 365 customer engagement application behind the scenes, you know, providing all the back processing for things like you know, online donations, event management, receipting, all these things that are a real headache for a lot of nonprofits now like a, a real Microsoft offering. So that was really why we kind of drove ourselves to, to create the system in, in the first place. It's a really difficult decision for, you know, if I look back at Mission CRM four or five years ago, you were a systems integrator building and deploying custom applications for your clients. <clears throat> to take a step back and say, we want to build some repeatable, reusable intellectual property, you've either got to find a consultant or two who's on the bench and build this application in your spare time, or pull people away from consulting work to go and develop a product. And that requires you know, either a lot of patience or a lot of investment um, if you manage to raise a lot of money. How did you manage to approach that problem? Because a lot of SIs seem to stumble at that, and these things are, are built on people's spare time, and they never really get kind of a professional development approach, and they, they fall by the wayside. You know, that's a really interesting observation because what, what I've, you know, like we, we've opened in the dynamic space for so long now. Now, you'll see a lot of SIs that, you know, uh, productized a project, but, but that's very different than building a product from the very get-go. You know, that's trying to find a use for something existing. And so you have legacy decisions in, in that SI product that then becomes productized, Right. So, yeah, it's, it's a huge decision. I mean, the, the reality is, is that from my perspective, like the writing was on the wall. You know, Microsoft or I were going to back people that found niche verticals where they could build an ISV community or they were just going to go back the biggest where they could find as far as SIs. And so I didn't want to be that, you know, collateral along that journey. So I think, I think every SI is probably asking themselves right now and when you've got this like low code, uh, adoption and the power platform that we've seen like such change like like I've been doing this since like 2002 when like version what 1.1 1.2 came out in the in the UK I think there's been more change in the last three years than the 10 that preceded it like it's it's phenomenal and, and each each application iteration empowers the client and customer so much more whereby we're now seeing that you know there's very little that differentiates SI number one to SI number two. So for us, it was, it was a strategic decision, a really painful one. Like I'll never forget, like uh, we, were, we were offered a, a phenomenal consulting role for a, for a really high profile client and it would have brought in an incredible amount of revenue. 
And our president at the time just said, like, no, because if we do this, we're never going to get out of always building custom solutions wow. and always competing with everyone else around us. So, so it was a decision. It was like we stepped back. We took the uh, 18 members that we had at the time. We're a bit more than that now, of course. But yeah, and then had to be able to plug holes for about two years and just work really, really hard to get that first product out there and that first release. And we were really lucky. We had we have found some some customers that were willing to take some risks too. I mean, imagine a, a big nonprofit taking a gamble from really established players at the time to effectively a startup with, with no track record and fundraising systems. And so along with those partners that were, you know, were, like looking for change in the market, we, we got to really build and improve our first system with those partners. And, and you know, we have to give a big shout out to like organizations like Right to Play who, who really saw what could happen on that platform and how it could really change and, and, and adopt how their funds were used internally for their administration. And, and, and they really helped build the product that it is today as, as well. In fact, there's a, a great case study on Right to Play, awesome movie, do a phenomenal amount of great work. But yeah, so it was two things. <laughs> to making that decision and quite frankly luck in finding a client that was ready to be that poster child and to go on that journey with you so you mission serum is turning away consulting work unless it was in the not-for-profit sector and if it was in the not-for-profit sector you had to remind the client that they need to be brave enough because you're building a product with their input and with their help and they're going to effectively be a beta client for this new platform that you were building it's um that's, that's a couple of brave leaps. Well done. That's it. <laughs> yeah, brave, brave leaps and luck, right, as they say and thing. But you know what? It, it, it was really also about like that strategy. And, you know, I never forget the turning point because we, we had this idea for, for a long time. And it was always, you know, that consulting where it was coming in the way. And it, it, was, it was never the priority. And so I think it was really like Christina, our president, who said, like, unless we just stop it, stop doing that consulting work today, we're never going to get this product off the ground to where it needs to be. So, you know, it takes a, a lot of guts and she made like a phenomenal decision. And, and obviously we we're reaping the rewards of that now. So tell me about those initial projects. Were you building the product and, and licensing it to those early customers? Or was it more of a consulting engagement with those early customers where you're building an application to suit their specific purpose? Oh no, we we built the product first of all. So we at the time that we went out to look for customers for our product, we we were well in like a year and a half in delivery, and we're like version two at that point in time. So we had like a lot of confidence, and and I think that's really what allowed us to get those initial customers because they could see, you know, without having to be talked through or vision what their life would be like, they could actually see a physical product in front of them that they could interact with that, that was benchmarked that was actually tested at that point in time and so they came onto it um knowing that it would still be a journey they would be able to put their input into it and, and in fact they really kind of uh, are our steering committee at this point in time but uh, no we went to them with a product and and again that's why i think makes the big difference like is if i did it any different way it would really be i'm trying to re uh, sell right to plays or whoever it might be is product and 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 that isn't the case because you're never going to be a product and a product is so different than taking a solution and, and productizing it i've had a lot of customers 
very strict on intellectual property rights. You know, they want yeah. to own all the IP and it's theirs and none of it can be reused by us. But I do remember a client, we were building a, uh, an application in the community service sector. So this is providing community care at home. He was insistent, like, I want you to build a product. I don't want to own any of this intellectual property. I want you to take this thing and go out and find other customers. I want you to, I, I, we want to be the first customer in a little steering group that's going to help guide the future development of this thing. But yeah, that was really a refreshing message to hear. Not many clients are willing to go there. So you've obviously no. found a, f- a few along the way. Yeah, no, we, we we did. We did. But you know what's interesting is that actually in the, in the nonprofit space, there's quite a few stories like that as well there, Neil. I mean, Flux is is a great example. They're, they're a Microsoft partner. They build a grant solution. And, and actually it was, uh, I think, the Ford Foundation they basically said that we need a we need a foundation product that can do grants management. There's nothing that's modern on the market right now. We build as a product and effectively go sell this product to go ahead and support it, and it will be your product. But you know we want to be the first product customer. So there's a few of those great stories out there, and, and I think that's a great example of a client or a potential customer also understanding what it means to own a product. And, and understanding that they will never have that ability. Like, it's hard to own a product. You know, there is always competition. There are always improvements. There are always support and infrastructure and things like that as you grow that are always on your mind when you build that new application or that new feature into the system as well. And these are things that it's, it's good that clients, like, know their limits, right? And, and that's why we really, I think, had a lot of successes with the mission CRM system after we first built it as well is because we could we could prove that we had the the consulting capability at the beginning so we we knew how to support it as equally as just you know creating a new product we had to have those services to help them utilize it afterwards and that was one of the great things about our revenue streams is that it soon became product and application so RIP is something and then it would become like the managed services and then all of a sudden you you start to create your own like ecosystem of, of services that you can offer and provide all supporting one another in there. And, and so that's where we're kind of growing into now. And originally it was just to build a product, sell the product, support it. And, and you didn't realize how much we would actually create our own ecosystem of potential revenue streams as well, just from making that switch to be an ISV. At some point during the development of the Mission Serum application, Microsoft has released They're not-for-profit accelerator. It's one of a number of accelerators they've released for different industries. Some of those are more mature than others. The thrust behind them is a common data model to try and uh, modernize and standardize some of the terminology used in different entities and so on, but really to give partners a foundation to build upon. It sounds like you went first. You you had the Mission Serum application available before Microsoft's not-for-profit accelerator. How has that worked out? Yeah, so... Um, they brought the accelerator out. It was about two years into us just having launched our products and things. And so we were like, oh, you know, crap. <laughs> right? so, <laughs> you know, like we've just we've just built this thing. And then here, here comes Microsoft with their like vision for it. Wasn't, and, and the problem is if, if they'd come out with just like a product, it would have been okay. There's a lot of comparable sales accelerators out there. And there's a lot of room for additional first party and second party applications. But what they did is they basically came out with a blueprint for how nonprofit products should be built on the Dynamics platform 
utilizing what they're referring to is is that common data model like that common data model is effectively like the rosetta stone of how nonprofits data should speak to one another data is like the achilles heel of nonprofits there are so many point solutions that everyone resonates with that message of what that common data model is anyone from the outside might be like well that's just a, a bunch of fields that are named in a consistent way like what's the big deal but believe it or not, there's really nothing like it in the nonprofit world, except thousands of point solutions, none of which really elegantly talk to each other. So here we are year two, we're onboarding new customers, and uh, the accelerator comes out. And so we have to make another difficult decision. Do we keep pushing this application and kind of ride out and see where the accelerator goes? Or is it an opportunity? Do we do version like two of the Mission CRM system, do the second one on top of that nonprofit accelerator, utilizing that common data model, and use all the intellectual property that we've already built for our first time, our knowledge of how Dynamics is constructed, and just simply apply it to this? And, and that's what we took. So down come the shop shutters again for a year, right? We go back. <laughs> <laughs> back in a year on the, in the front of their shop door sign, right? And a year later on, we come out with Mission CRM, what we internally refer to as V2, the full V2, uh, on the nonprofit accelerator, which utilized the common data model. And it worked out. We ended up being the first, the first certified in app source, the first legitimate common data model-based application for fundraising on Dynamics. And, and I guess that's where maybe Microsoft, we call their attention, because of what we were not just doing in that space, but also we were really behind what they were doing. We, we saw that that was a great idea and that is something that we wanted to be a part of. And if the accelerator was about standardizing how applications and nonprofits talk to each other, then just like any organization, what drives a nonprofits is typically sales, and sales is fundraising. So if we could be the fundraising solution, we could be at the heart of it and really be the reason as to why you would adopt then not just dynamics, but the common data model. And it worked out well, thank goodness. But yeah, another really, really hard decision. And, and that's the thing with applications. If there'll be another hard decision the year after. There'll be another competitor. There'll be something else that happens that you have to keep changing. And you have to keep making decisions. But always decisions aligned to that strategy of, of being the, the best fundraising solution that there is out there on Dynamics and the most technologically advanced, utilizing everything that there is. And if you're, you're driven by, I guess, those guiding principles, then the clients will come and the application will, will develop along those lines. So we, we were, again, lucky, but strategic as well. So that's, that's a great story. Are there any other major challenges like that where you, you had to pivot, you know, make some hard decisions and pivot in a pretty tight fashion to, to get around some of the, the hurdles facing you? Well, yeah, actually. So one was, was really the design of, of Dynamics as, as an application, an incredibly powerful tool. But the problem that we had with fundraising is that fundraising is meant to do a lot of things repeatedly in a very short amount of time. So you might have a client that has hundreds of thousands of recurring donations that need to be batch processed. And so you really blur the line between like ERP, uh, custom solutions and dynamics. One of the things that we originally did is we wanted to be like a centralized service that provided all those things. 
where clients would connect from app source to us. And one of the decisions that we had to make like pretty pretty quickly was actually changing that that architecture around to be client driven. And what we found was that the processes ran more smoothly, the client liked being in tighter control of their application. And it also meant that a lot of the compliance hurdles where like you're managing customers' data on their behalf, you could do so securely without actually having to have your your data, you know, essentially located. So we changed our design to have an Azure environment that literally wraps around uh, an organization's tenant infrastructure. So it's all locked behind their Azure environments that only they can get to and really only Dynamics can speak to. And um, that was a really great decision. And, and what we've now invested in that is just phenomenal. Like we just started with an Azure service that did recurring donations. And now we've got live donation pages, rich ETL integration to like data validation services and phenomenal amount of, of processes. So it's really been like our home for where Dynamics is is great at surfacing and allowing users to interact with data. It's never been ideal at like, I got to go recalculate 1.8 million records in the next hour, <laughs> right? Like that's just well, not going to happen, <laughs> you know, in dynamics, right? So, so yeah, so, so I think learning and, and adapting to, let's face it, a platform's limits that you have no control over, which, which even to this day is still ever-changing, uh, can prevent present it, you know, some some architecture challenges at the last minute, right? So, I've done that on behalf of enterprise clients where I'm offloading a lot of transactional processing to Azure in a similar way yeah. you are. But that's you know one client's Dynamics instance, one client's Azure instance. Are you? Do you have a common Azure tenant that is processing transactions for all of your clients, or is it one per customer? It's it's one it's one per customer. So. One of the things that we did was we invested a lot in how can we make that process really simple. We actually did a lot of investment into how the deployment of that Azure environment would actually complete. And now when we do an install, like originally we'd we'd have to manually create all the services, you know, set all the configurations, get all the private keys in place. And there was always some human error that could be in there the very early days. And now it's amazing. Like I go in, I click a button and the, the environment's built. It's just done, right? So I think one of the things that often like gets underestimated is I would say that we've invested just as much in our product as we have in the processes that support the product. Like things like that, right? Like our infrastructure for help, our infrastructure for support. And when you build this product, you can build the most amazing product in the world, but if you haven't got a great learning curriculum to guide users on them and you're relying on just like in-person or like one-on-one training, you're never going to scale. And and so a lot of investment, like you, you don't realize at the beginning, gets sucked into just the infrastructure and onboarding and management of, of clients on the application as well. That's funny because you mentioned earlier about sometimes customers want to build an application and that they're going to take it to market. I get that a lot with, seems to be Australian state agencies who, mm-hmm. who have counterparts in other, in other states, right? So there's six or seven uh, departments who, who have a similar function across Australia. One of them wants to build an app on Dynamics or on Power Apps and they have a vision for selling it to all of the others to recoup their investment. And they just don't have any idea what it takes to build yeah. a product. To, to the, the DevOps 
investments you have to make in infrastructure deployment, like you said, in the support processes, in the maintenance and updates, in the learning and helping users to understand and adopt your application. These are these are investments that a client, unless software development is is their core business, it's quite often a huge distraction for them and something they just don't see when they embark on these types of projects. Yeah, absolutely. And um, also your scale. And the one thing that I think people would underestimate is at the beginning, you can go really, really quickly because your your customer base is only so big. And and so therefore your your impact for change is is pretty small, right? If I look at one of our releases now, if I introduce a new function in the system or even like to tinker with a small piece that already exists, I've got, it goes from, my dev solution branching to our QA, to our pre-release, to our pre-staging. Then it goes to release candidate, and then it goes out. And and like that happens whether I want to change a field on the form or actually like a, a, an integratable piece of it. And so imagine managing all these moving pieces that shift around your release strategy as, as well and the support and the QA that goes into every single version of those. Because you're at a point where you've got such critical mass that you can't afford not to go through a really rigid process because those processes are the only ways to avoid absolute catastrophic outcomes otherwise. Right. So all the hurdles I go through to get a new feature into production, you're having to do that on behalf of tens or hundreds of production instances for all of your customers. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so it has to be guaranteed, right? So, yeah. Forgive the pun, but it's it's mission critical. If <laughs> fundraising goes down, uh, a lot of these um, organizations are going to be in dire straits. So, and that's it. And you know what? That's actually a really interesting point too, because ERP systems they deal typically with the aftermath of something else collecting revenue. When you look at a fundraising system, that is the entry point for revenue. Therefore, we introduce a few different scenarios as well. You take the typical really good dynamic developer architect. They will never normally be dealt with a scenario whereby if if you mess that up, that means that that organization doesn't collect any revenue. That's their only source of managing revenue. Let's face it, if we were doing a sales implementation, like so what if you can do an opportunity for like a day? Like whatever. You know, like it's 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 just and, and so what we find was really difficult was like getting into that mindset really meant that we put, had to put these processes in place at the very beginning. And, and one of the things that, although at the time it was really painful, even before we started development, we figured out what our DevOps release process would be. We figured out what those processes for approving and changes and managing and testing would be so that we could have them in there for day one. And so now, like we onboard new team members, I've got all 28 members of our teams know how that process is and can support and amply new team members onboarding as a result of it. Thinking forward down about how you're going to do it, like today, if you're thinking of building an application, is really worthwhile. Go through those motions and figure out how you're going to support it, manage it, test it, and ship that product. Because those are things that could make or break your application. I'm a big fan of taking an agile approach. You don't think this is something you can figure out iteratively, customer by customer? I think, you know, it's interesting. So our, our development is agile. Our, our core development is agile. But 
when it goes into release, it then goes into a completely mechanical specific process that goes through all the checks and boxes as, as a result of that. So, yeah. I think that sounds like a good marriage between agile software development and well-structured DevOps. That's that's the way it should be. It should be yeah. uh, highly structured, very automated, uh, as little human intervention as possible, completely tested from one end to the other with feedback loops all the time, confirming you know, it's successfully been deployed here and here and here. So, yeah, sometimes you've got that strategy figured out. And really, there's no better testament to your Agile strategy than than having that DevOps process in, in place because all those feedback loops are telling you in many ways, how is how is that sprint doing and performing and really giving you those benchmarks? And, you know, I think a lot of people do Agile, right? Well, say they do Agile, but but they don't realize that, that Agile is also, you know, calculating your performance in Agile. Is your Agile strategy working? Is it right for your customer base? Yep. Like we had a, a very difficult time finding the right methodology for deploying our products at the very beginning. And, and that was really because of our maybe lack of experience in the nonprofit world, whereby organizations and nonprofits are typically governed by committee. That means that bringing in an agile experience where we can all solution and think about how things could be and see how it goes is very difficult to then apply to like that committee-based focus that want to digest, break out, uh, you know, uh, agree to move forward onto the next stage. And, and, and they see, because they run their organization in that way, it's very difficult for them to manage, let's say, development processes and applications that way. And I think back to your point earlier about you have a lot of organizations that want to productize an application. A lot of customers want to do it. What's their project management happy place? And is it going to like going to complement that process or is it just going to be they've got the best idea in the world, they have the technical chops to do it, but their ability to manage it maybe doesn't doesn't sit in harmony with what the application has been asked to do as, as well, right? So there's, there's other right. components in there. Tell me a little bit about your release and your update strategy for customers. I'm sure you've got some customers who are very eager for the latest uh, release with the features that they've been waiting on, maybe, you know, the stuff that they suggested, it's in your roadmap, they're very excited about it. But at the same time, some customers get very nervous about any changes to the production environment and, and they resist or push back on releases. How have you managed to balance that? Because I presume you're providing updates to all of your customer base all at once um, on, a, on a schedule, or have you figured out a way for customers to be able to opt in to each of your updates on a customer-by-customer -customer basis? Yeah, so we, we plan our releases around the planned releases for, for Dynamics. So we, we always know right. and, and document out to our clients that you should always expect to spring and you should always spring to fall. We all know that fall often is like right before Christmas and that spring often is just before <laughs> summer, but you know... <laughs> That's the language, right, that fits with, with Dynamics. So there's always an expectation that, that you are purchasing a product that you have very low control over because you can't. We can't manage compliance, be secure, and keep everything where it needs to be by having to negotiate with our clients about how they uh, manage and accept their updates. But something that helps with that, though, is just the fact that they should naturally expect updates because of the way that Dynamics rolls out. Now, one of the things that we, we find a little challenging is that in, in our release strategy, we actually, we try and release everyone at the same time, but we also understand that certain geographic locations 
might not be able to go at the same time. So like we have clients in Australia using Mission CRM. I've got the UK, Germany, Switzerland, Canada, and the US, right? There's there's a real smorgasbord of regions that are that are using the system. And and as as Microsoft's rollout strategy, interesting enough, it, it hits the Canadian data centers first. Then I believe it hits APAC region, and then it makes its way to Japan. I'm probably getting some of this incorrect, but it, it effectively it goes in a, in a tiered approach, right? So we need to be able to react ahead of time as those releases are being rolled out into those different geographic locations. So although the client is expecting a fall release or a spring release, we also have to be able to follow in those geographic locations for our updates as, as well. That's pretty tricky to dovetail into Microsoft's release strategy because you might be developing that feature on the previous version. Oh, Microsoft's working on a, new, yeah. on a new feature. You've got to you've got to test that and preview in a very short window before they've rolled it out to your customers, and then you've got to roll out your updates at around the same time. So that must be a, a tricky balancing act. It it is a balancing act. I'm understanding that I think the communication is getting better around when things are actually going to be sent out and making those those items uh, uh, a little bit more clearer. So you know, one of the issues that we we might have is that APAC didn't roll out when we were expecting it to. And so, you know, everyone's geared up to manage these releases. And all of a sudden, you know, your whole next three weeks gets completely turned upside down as a result of it. But I guess that's just managing a product. I mean, the benefit is, I don't have to create my own CRM system to have a home for our fundraising system either. So I'll, I'll take that compromise of the engineering team that are doing those rollouts, and I'm, I'm quite happy to fit in with their schedule as a result of it. Whoa, there were so many great insights there from CJ Brooks, fundraising and engagement architect at Mission CRM. A special thanks to Nick Dolman for introducing me to CJ. If you enjoyed that episode with CJ, then remember to subscribe to the Amazing Applications podcast to get access to the bonus extended session. The bonus episodes aren't promoted on social media, and the best way to access them is to click subscribe in your favorite podcast player and automatically download future episodes. The bonus episode will be published in the next couple of days. Meantime, you can get show notes for this episode at customary.com slash 027. The show notes includes all of CJ's contact details and a transcript of this episode. Until next time, keep sprinting. <laughs>